If you're watching this channel, it's because you don't enjoy watching the world squander what Christendom built, but you want to do your part. And chances are you've heard me mention a great means by doing just that. Email made by and for Catholics. Check out fide.email. That's F-I-D-E-I dot email. Built for Catholic individuals, families, organizations, and groups. They're private, secure, and of course, they're Catholic. And they're offering two months off on your first year for an annual subscription if you enter the coupon code return to tradition without spaces that's the name of this channel without spaces at checkout a few days ago on the eve of the synod cardinal raymond burke in the aftermath of his dubia submitted along with four other cardinals to rome gave an address in italy in italian on the subject of synodality he corrects and chastises a cardinal Fernandez, the prefect for the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith, for accusing those who have questions about schism or questions of, uh, on the subject of the Synod of schism and heresy. And he, Cardinal Burke, goes into great length here about the errors of the Synod on synodality. These errors are not so over the top as you might expect. In fact, if you're familiar with Cardinal Burke's writings, it can be fairly dry, and this is the case here. But he goes over how the Synod breaks from the tradition of the church has absolutely nothing to do with synodality as is practiced in the Eastern rites of the church or even by the Eastern Orthodox, that it's its own thing. And its purpose is to reform the church essentially out of existence. And it, by, and he even compares what is going on in the church to the, like an imposition of secular ideas in the church about how to govern the church. It's the kind of letter that could get him in trouble. And few have, com have commented on this, and I'm not that surprised because, again, it's a bit dry. But Cardinal Burke is, at the end of the day, very clear here. The Synod isn't Catholic. It's something else. He never goes on to use terms like ape of the church, like we do here. He never goes on to say, you know, that this is heretical. But it's one of those read-between-the-lines kind of things. I'll let you decide that for yourself, though. Here's Cardinal Burke's letter. The address of Cardinal Burke, given originally in Italian at the Compass Conference on October 3rd, 2023. First of all, I would like to thank the organizers of this conference, in particular Riccardo Cascioli and all the collaborators of Nueva Busoya Cotodiana for having given us the opportunity to deal with topics that are extremely important for all of us, because they touch the most fundamental good of our common Holy Mother, the Catholic Church, the mystical body of Christ, who is the only Savior of the world. I would like to thank especially Father Gerald Murray and Professor Stefano Fontana for the essential considerations they presented to us today. They have exposed in a very convincing manner, exposed, I should say, the philosophical, canonical, and theological errors that are widespread today regarding the Synod of Bishops and its upcoming session entitled for a synodal church, communion, participation, mission. I would immediately like to recommend for your reading the book by Giulio Loreto and Jose Antonio Uretta, Synodal Process, A Pandora's Box, 100 Questions and 100 Answers, available in Italian and many other languages. The serene and profound study that lies behind this book is a very precious help in addressing the pervasive confusion around the session of the Synod of Bishops, which will begin tomorrow, today, October 4th, 2023. Professor Fontana said that, quote, The new synodality, considered in its own categories of time,
practice and procedure is the final moment of a long journey that has crossed all of modernity, end quote. By drawing our attention to the philosophical sources of so-called synodality, he unmasks its worldliness. This is why our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only Savior, is not at the root and center of synodality. This is why the divine nature of the Church in its foundation and in its organic and lasting life is overlooked and indeed forgotten. The Holy Spirit is very often invoked in the perspective of the synod. The entire synod process is presented as a work of the Holy Spirit, who will guide all the members of the synod, but there is not even a word about the obedience due to the inspirations of the Holy Spirit, which are always consistent with the truth of the perennial doctrine and the goodness of the perennial discipline that he has inspired throughout the centuries. It is unfortunately very clear that the invocation of the Holy Spirit by some has the aim of pushing forward an agenda that is more political and human than ecclesial and divine. The agenda of the church is unique, that is, the search for the common good of the church, that is, the salvation of souls, the salus animarium, which in In Ecclesia Suprema Semper Lex Esse Debe. The synod on quote-unquote synodality continues some perspectives widespread in the church today, and also highlighted by the recent reform of the Roman Curia outlined by the Apostolic Constitution, Predicate Evangelium. It mainly insists on indicating that the missionary nature and synodality of the church as the attributes, the essential traits of ecclesial life, and seems to derive the structure of the Roman Curia from this approach. But as we profess in the symbol of faith, as was taught by the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council in the dogmatic constitution of the church, Lumen Gentium, the Holy Mother Church is in her attributes, in her essential traits, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Confusion about theology, morality, and even basic philosophy in which we live is fueled by a great lack of clarity in the vocabulary used, and this is probably intentional on the part of some. We are witnessing a semantic shift in some words or expressions, which makes the Church's teaching on some points incomprehensible. I could mention the expression, God's mercy, for example, but sometimes new words are introduced or taken to extremes without a clear definition, as in the case of the word synodality. In this case, with confusion about the essential traits of the Church, there is the risk of losing the identity of the Church, our identity as members of the mystical body of Christ, of branches in the true vine, which is Christ, and of which the Eternal Father is the farmer. The moment these concepts become central and are not clearly defined, the door opens to anyone who wants to interpret them in a way that breaks with the Church's constant teaching on these issues. In fact, the history of the Church teaches us that the resolution of the worst crises such as that of Arius, always begins with great precision in the vocabulary and concepts used. Let us return to the essential traits of the Church proposed in the Predicate Evangelium to better understand in which direction the synod is tending, missionary nature and synodality. These are two attributes that are in some senses known, but their elevation to essential traits of the Church, and therefore fundamental criteria for the restructuring of the Roman Curia, and now with this synod to the entire universal church, lends itself to ambiguities and misunderstandings that must be recognized and dissipated. It is right to say that the whole church is missionary. All the faithful are called, according to their vocation and personal gifts, to bear witness to Christ in the world. But in bearing witness to Christ, the faithful need an encounter with him, alive in the church through sacred tradition, which is doctrinal, liturgical, and disciplinary. Good pastors are needed, the Roman pontiff and the bishops in communion with him, together with the priests, the main cooperators of the bishops, who guide them to Christ and safeguard for them life in Christ, 
especially for the teaching of sound doctrine and good customs, and in a more perfect and complete way for the sacred liturgy as the adoration of God in spirit and truth. It is, in fact, the teaching of truth and divine worship in spirit and truth that make the life in Christ of every believer and of the whole church grow. As St. Paul teaches us, in the church we are no longer children at the mercy of the waves carried here and there by any wind of doctrine, deceived by men with that cunning that leads to error. But acting according to truth and charity, we seek to grow in everything, tending towards him who is the head, Christ. According to the constant teaching of the church, Christ established the Petrine office so that all the bishops, and thus all the faithful, are united in Christ. The Second Vatican Council and the Dogmatic Constitution of the Church declared, In order for the Episcopate itself to be one and undivided, Jesus Christ placed Blessed Peter above the other apostles and established in him the perpetual invisible principle and foundation of the unity of faith and communion. This is how the Council defines the Petrine office. The Roman Pontiff, as successor of Peter, is the perpetual invisible principle and foundation of the unity of both the bishops and the multitude of the faithful. The Roman Curia is the main instrument of the Roman Pontiff in his irreplaceable service to the Universal Church. According to the words of the Council Fathers, in the exercise of his supreme, full, and immediate power over the whole church, the Roman pontiff makes use of the dicasteries of the Roman curia, which therefore carry out their duties in his name and authority, for the benefit of the churches at the service of the sacred pastors. The successor of St. Peter, through the Roman curia, helps individual bishops to carry out their fundamental service, which the council describes with these words. All bishops, in fact, must promote and defend the unity of the faith and the common discipline of the whole church, instruct the faithful in the love of the whole mystical body of Christ, especially the poor and suffering members, and those who are persecuted for the sake of justice. And finally, promote every common activity to the whole church, especially in ensuring that faith grows and the light of full truth arises from all men. The missionary nature of the church is the fruit of this unity of doctrine, liturgy, and discipline. It is the fruit of the living Christ in the church, in the members of his mystical body of which he is the head. It is Christ alone who is announced and preached to all nations, so that many may be baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Here is the mission of the church entrusted to her by the Lord. Quote, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even into the end of the world. The mission of Christ is prior to any missionary activity, to the trade of missionary nature. In fact, missionary activity is only a manifestation of the living presence of Christ in the church to make disciples of all peoples. Christ, who always remains alive in the church until the end of the world. Synodality as an abstract term is a neologium in the doctrine of the church. It is well known that the Second Vatican Council wanted to avoid the abstract terms of conciliarity and collegiality, which are not found in the conciliar text. It is to be assumed that the Council itself would have wanted to avoid an abstract term such as synodality if it had known it. Canonical tradition knows the institution of the synod as an instrument for giving advice to the sacred pastors. The Church is not described as synodal, but instead as hierarchical communion. They are the pastors in the communion safeguarded and promoted by the Petrine office. That is, the hierarchy which has the responsibility for the doctrinal, liturgical, and moral guidance of the church. The synod is help offered to pastors so that they can carry out their service. It can never replace the pastoral office wanted and instituted by Christ himself. 
The Synod of Bishops is described as, quote, an assembly of bishops who meet at a specific time to foster a close union between the Roman pontiff and the bishops and to lend assistance with their advice to the Roman pontiff himself in safeguarding and an increase of faith and customs in the observance and consolidation of ecclesiastical discipline and also to study the problems concerning the activity of the church in the world. Father Murray reminded us of the nature of the Synod of Bishops, according to the aforementioned Canon 342 of the Code of Canon Law. I would only add that in a similar way, the Diocesan Synod describes itself as, quote, the assembly of priests and other faithful of the particular church, chosen to provide assistance to the Diocesan Bishop for the good of the entire Diocesan community. The Synod as a canonical institution refer, refers to a solemn manner of the different ways in which all the faithful, by their vocation and with their gifts, assist their sacred pastors to fulfill their responsibilities as true masters of the faith. Canon 212 of the Code of Canon Law, having its original source in the Sunday teaching on fraternal correction, provides the norms that govern the relationship between the sacred pastors and the faithful in the hierarchical communion of the Church. The institution of the Synod, among these ways, is extraordinary, requiring long and adequate preparation and a well-disciplined celebration to avoid misunderstandings that could easily, especially in a completely secularized and worldly culture, make the synod process harmful to the church. I would now like to share with you some reflections that I expressed to other venerable brothers of the College of Cardinals on the occasion of the meeting of the Cardinals just over a year ago. They concern more directly the structure of the Roman Curia, but are very closely connected to our topic. Missionary nature and synodality as qualities, not attributes or essential traits of ecclesial life do not change the nature of the Petrine office or of the service provided by the Roman Curia, to the successor of Peter as principles and the perpetual visible unity of faith and communion. In fact, they presuppose the Petrine office assisted by the Roman Curia. In light of this, some observations follow. First, the Apostolic Constitution, Predicata Evangelium, insists that the Roman Curia, quote, is at the service of the Pope and successor of Peter, and of the bishops, successors of the apostles but the service of the Roman Curia is to the successor of Peter. By serving the Roman pontiff, the Roman Curia also serves the bishops in their relationship with the Pope. It is unrealistic to demand that the Roman Curia serve all the bishops. Indeed, they have their own Curia to help them fulfill their responsibilities as true shepherds. In this, the distinct service of the successor of Peter must be kept clear. At the same time, defining the Roman Curia at the service of individual bishops would risk transmitting a worldly vision of the Church in which the particular churches would be branches or subsidiaries of the church in Rome, all served by the same Roman Curia. It would be a distortion of the relationship of the successor of Peter with the bishops. Second, the term dicastery is a generic secular term taken from Roman law for the various offices of different nature in the Roman Curia does not sufficiently express the aspect of hierarchical communion involved in the treatment of doctrinal, liturgical, educational, missionary, etc. issues and it does not express the real difference not in dignity, all departments are equal, legal equally, but in matter and competence. Third, it seems right to restore in some form, at least in the next implementation phase of the Apostolic Constitution, Pedicati Evangelium, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, in the first place among all the congregations of the Roman Curia, by virtue of its task of helping the Roman Pontiff and the bishops in proclamation of the Gospel throughout the world, promoting and protecting the integrity of Catholic doctrine on faith and morals, drawing on the deposit of faith, and also seeking an ever deeper intelligence in the face of new questions. Fourth, it would be quite important in the list of qualities required of officials and consultors 
to put sound doctrine and consistency with the sound discipline of the church in the first place. It does not seem necessary to me to go into detail to understand that the synod, which will open tomorrow, today, or two days ago, rather, is nothing other than a direct extension of what has already been highlighted by the Apostolic Constitution, Pedicate Evangelium. It is therefore strange to say that we do not know in which direction the synod will go. When it is so clear that the desire is to profoundly modify the hierarchical constitution of the church, a similar process was used in the church in Germany to achieve the same harmful goal. It is frequently said that the insistence on synodality of the church is nothing other than recovering in an ecclesiastical characteristic always observed by the Eastern Church. I have regular contact with Eastern bishops and priests, both Catholic and Orthodox. They all told me that the way to the synod is organized has nothing to do with Eastern synods. This applies not only to the place of lay people in the assemblies, but also more generally to the way they operate, even the issues they address. There is confusion around the term synodality, which is artificially attempted to be linked to an Eastern practice, but which in reality has all the characteristics of a recent invention, especially as regards lay people. Such a change in the self-understanding of the church is a further consequence, a weakening of the teaching on matters of morality, as well as discipline in the church. I won't dwell much on these points, which are dramatically known to everyone. Moral theology has lost all its points of reference. It is urgent to consider the moral act in its totality, and not only in its subjective aspect. The 30th anniversary of the publication of Veritatis Splendor can help us with this. I welcome and encourage the initiatives I've seen on this issue. The commandments of the Decalogue are valid and will remain valid, as they have always been in every age, simply because they are inherent in human nature. Given everything that I have observed, and that we are examining in depth in our conference today, October 3rd, I, together with four other cardinals, their eminences Cardinal Walter Brandmuller, Cardinal Juan Sandoval Niguez, Cardinal Robert Seurat, and Cardinal Joseph Zen, each coming from a different continent, we presented dubia to the sovereign pontiff during the summer to clarify a certain number of fundamental points belonging to the deposit of the faith, which today are being questioned, especially in the continuation of the so-called synodality. Many brothers of the Episcopate and also the College of Cardinals support this initiative, even if they are not on the official list of signatories. Today, an article appeared in Il Journal by the Vatican correspondent Fabio Marchese Ragona on the dubia submitted to Pope Francis. At the end of the article, he cites comments on the dubia of two, quote, synod fathers whom he interviewed. I quote the comment, quote, We are very sorry the times of the Church are not those of these brothers. They cannot dictate the Pope's agenda, thus causing wounds and undermining unity in the Church. But we're used to it by now. They just want to hit Francis. End quote. These comments reveal the state of confusion, error, and division that permeates the session of the Synod of Bishops which begins tomorrow. The five dubia deal exclusively with the perennial doctrine and discipline of the Church, not an agenda of the Pope. They do not deal with the times of the past. The language is very revealing on, of the mundanity of the vision. Then they do not deal with the person of the Holy Father. In fact, by their nature, they are an expression of due veneration for the Petrine office and the successor of St. Peter. These comments seem to reflect a fundamental error recently expressed by the new prefect, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, of the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith, in an interview he gave to Edward Penton of the National Catholic Register. He declared that, in addition to the deposit of the faith, the Roman pontiff has a living and active gift, which results in what he defines as, quote, the doctrine of the Holy Father. Furthermore, he accuses those who criticize this doctrine of the Holy Father of heresy and schism. 
but the Church has never taught that the Roman Pontiff has a special gift to constitute his own doctrine. The Holy Father is the first master of the deposit of faith, which is always alive and dynamic in itself. Thus, he teaches the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, De Verbum, of the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, quote, Sacred tradition and sacred scripture constitute a single sacred deposit of the word of God entrusted to the church. Adhering to it, all the holy people, united with their pastors, constantly persevere in the teaching of the apostles and in communion, in the breaking of bread and prayers, so that in holding, practicing, and professing the faith transmitted, a singular unity of spirit is created between bishops and faithful. End quote. We must reflect on the gravity of the ecclesial situation when the prefect of the dicastery of the doctrine of the faith accuses of heresy and schism those who ask the Holy Father to exercise the Petrine office to safeguard and deposit, promote the depositum fide. We are told that the church which we profess in communion with our ancestors in faith since the time of the apostles to be one holy Catholic and apostolic must now be defined by synodality, a term which has no history in church doctrine, and for which there is no reasonable definition. It is obviously an artificial construction, more similar to a human construction than to the church built on the rock that is Christ. The instrumental laborious of the next session of the Synod of Bishops certainly contains statements that depart in a striking and serious way from the perennial teaching of the church. First of all, we must publicly reaffirm our faith. In this, bishops have the duty to confirm their brothers. Today's bishops and cardinals need a lot of courage to face the serious errors that come from within the church itself. The sheep depend on the, vo the courage of the shepherds who must protect them from the poison of confusion, error, and division. But I would like to conclude by exhorting you to pray to implore heaven's help against all the powers, human and preternatural, that dream of the destruction of the church. Don't worry. We know that good is always valued in the eyes of God and will be justly rewarded, just as evil will be punished. Many young people are aware of this and try to live with the support of the sacraments, an authentic life of faith, hope, and charity. That is a life ever more fully in Christ, with an ever more given heart, together with the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to his most sacred heart. This is clearly the true future of the church, the only one that will truly bear fruit. Today, good Christians must be ready to suffer the white martyrdom of misunderstanding, rejection, and persecution and sometimes the red martyrdom of giving all, to be faithful witnesses of Christ and his collaborators in the truth. Although the current confusion is particularly great, even historically significant, if not unprecedented, we cannot believe that the situation is irreversible. As I just mentioned, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The Lord promised to remain with us in the church until the end of the world. He doesn't lie. He is always faithful to his promises. We can always trust in the Lord who lives for us in the church. And certainly we must never abandon the Lord, but remain with him in the church, which is his mystical body. We must always remain branches surely inserted into the vine that is him. However, we are forced to note that many souls take the path of perdition due to this confusion, for which we must pray a lot and act to dispel it as soon as possible. We invoke the Blessed Virgin Mary, in particular in her Immaculate Heart, St. Joseph, Protector of the Holy Church, the Apostles Peter and Paul, and all the saints, so that each of us remains faithful to Christ and his church, one holy Catholic and apostolica, the holy Roman church, and so that the church itself without spot or wrinkle can emerge as soon as possible from the current state of confusion and division to shorten these times in which the risk of perdition of souls is great. Salus enum, madam, in Ecclesia Suprema Semper Lex Esse Debe. Thanks for your attention, and may God bless you in your homes always, and may the Virgin Mother of God, St. Joseph, Saints Peter and Paul, 
and all the saints guide you and safeguard your path. And that was the long address by Cardinal Burke, given originally in Italian. It does begin, he does spend a lot of time laying the groundwork for what he's saying, pointing out in a very dry way the errors of synodality itself, the errors of the synod of bishops. And I would add one to it, and that's ambiguity, the error of ambiguity. Some people say, how can you talk about, you know, critiques the synod and talk about these issues if you don't know what synodality is? Well, that's because the church has never explained what synodality is, not in any meaningful way. That's why we joke that it is a meeting on meetings. Because that's what it sounds like. Except, of course, as Cardinal Burke lays out here at the beginning, in the dry sort of beginning of this letter, it goes much deeper than that. It goes much deeper and much more pernicious than that. And it is being used to essentially reform the Catholic Church out of existence. I'm curious what you had to say, what you think about this. I, I will have a link to this in my today's show notes at returntotradition.org. It is in Italian, so be wary of that. But um, you can use a translating extension on Google Chrome for that, or the website DeepL will translate it paragraph by paragraph for you. It'll take some time to do, but you can do that if you want to read it for yourself. Anyway, let me know what you think about this in the comments, please. And like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps too. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.